Welcome to Multifamily Live. I'm Kaylee Arusi. And I'm Jason Arusi. Our mission is to help you unlock your full potential as a multifamily real estate investor. So you can do more deals, bigger deals, with less stress, keep more profit, and free up your time. Multifamily doesn't have to be a mystery. It's time to go live. All right, so welcome back today. Super excited for today's guest, Richard Koch. Hey, Richard, how are you? I'm great today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for being with us. Richard, in 1983, Richard and his two friends were also partners in Bain & Company, started LEK, a strategy consultancy focused on mergers and acquisitions consulting. LEK grew at 100% a year during his first six years. And in 1989, Richard sold his shares to his partners using the capital to start or expand small star businesses, leaders in high growth market segments. His investments have grown at 22% compounded annually over 37 years. So I'm going to say that again for everyone listening. His investments have grown at 22% compounded annually over 37 years. He's written 25 books and businesses and ideas, including the 80-20 principle, which has sold over a million copies and been translated into around 40 languages. And one of his other books, The Star Principle, uh, which I've read, and you should too, everyone out there, outlines his unique philosophy showing the joy of working in a startup star business. His latest work on reasonable success and how to achieve it was published in August 2020 and provides a template for extraordinary impact on the world. Richard, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. It's so a pleasure. If we were to look back at, at so much you've done, what are you most proud of? I think probably starting LEK uh, because it was such a different experience for me. And one of the things that I talk about in uh, this book, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It, is that it's very valuable to have what I call a transforming experience. And the transforming experience means that you go into a particular time or a particular job or role or educational establishment as one person and you emerge when you come out, Jason, as a different sort of person, as a person with much greater authority, often with rare knowledge, which is really useful. And with the determination to make some kind of uh, big change in the world. And for me, LEK was that, that I, I had worked previously at Boston Consulting Group, where I learned all about the star principle, and I learned about how you can actually make more money by being a market leader in very high growth business. But I was a failure at uh, BCG. They threw me out because I wasn't very good at quantitative analysis. Uh, and then I went with my tail somewhat between my legs to go and work for another firm, which had been a spin-off from the Boston Consulting Group called Bain and & Company. And Bill Bain had been the number two to Bruce Henderson at the Boston Consulting Group, but he thought he'd have more fun by starting his own outfit. And the only problem which Bill Bain had was that they found it quite difficult to get people of the, the same caliber uh, at BCG to um, actually accept jobs there. So they took rejects like me, essentially. Uh, and uh, the great thing about Bain and Company was that uh, I'd always been a non-conformist before. I'd always uh, been rather uppity and difficult. Um, and at uh, Bain and Company, I decided that since that hadn't worked at BCG, I'd better actually toe the party line at Bain and Company, which I did. And I found that it was actually a very interesting experience. It was a, uh, it, it, I thought it would kill me. 
to actually go along with, you know, what the powers that be actually wanted. But I found it quite liberating, actually. It was, it was not too bad. But I couldn't keep it up for all that long. And after three years, I decided it was much more fun. It would be much more fun to actually own a strategy consulting firm rather than to be a very junior partner in uh, the firm, which is the case at, at uh, Bain & Company. So the three of us started LEK, and it was a transforming experience for me because I had never, ever had my own business. And it was, it was so wonderful to actually be in charge of your own destiny. Not totally, obviously, because if you have two equal partners, uh, obviously they have a say as well. But it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. And one of the best things was that I could actually hire whoever I wanted. Actually, I wasn't in charge of all the recruitment. I was just in charge of the more junior people. There were sort of two grades of consultant. There were the... Uh, ones which had been to business school and those that had not. Those that had not were the ones hired directly from some of the best universities in America and in Europe. And I decided it was much more interesting rather than uh, uh, having loads and loads of MBAs who were very expensive. Uh, it would be much better to have lots and lots of people who were equally or perhaps even more intelligent, but just didn't know anything and take people directly from, from uni and then train them, brainwash them, if you like, in them what we mm -hmm. were doing. And uh, those people also had tremendous energy. They, they would work 80 hours a week if necessary, if we we're on you know, major projects, and they would um, you know, just do anything at all to uh, make the projects very, very successful. And it was such a pleasure to work with those people and to help develop them. And since then, a huge number of those people have gone on to be very successful in lots of different areas in venture capital. Uh, others of them have decided to make money like me as a, as a freelance venture capitalist. Others of them have joined big organizations and been very successful there. So it creates a kind of network which just keeps going and going and going. And, and the large majority of the investments that I've made have been from ideas which were generated or came to me from people who had worked at LEK. Some of them from BCG, some of them from Bain & Company, but most of them from LEK. And you know, to the extent that I've been very, very successful in my investments, I think I owe it to two reasons. One is that the, the star principle, the idea that you should invest in leaders in a, a very fast growth market uh, is a fantastic idea and it nearly always works. But the other thing was that these, these, these uh, leads of companies that I could invest in were brought to me by the network of people that I had helped to train and develop and become friends with. And so that was something which, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have a theory of the, of the STAR principle, unless you can actually find the companies that are available. And sometimes that's very difficult. Uh, it's, uh, it's no use because you, you know, you've obviously got to invest in a particular company rather than in uh, a theory. So the LEK thing was for me a transforming experience and it led on to the other things which um, have helped to make me very successful. So I always say to people, Jason, have you had a transforming experience in your life? And I explain again what that is, that you go into it as one person, you come out of it as a different person with special knowledge and rare skills 
and great confidence and authority. And if you haven't, well, perhaps you had better engineer a transforming experience for yourself. Uh, and then I can discuss, you know, how to find that and so on and so forth. Yeah, so, I'd love to hear an example, right? Because someone may think, um, you know, we, we can see a transformational experience on, on many levels um, and yours going to LEK really helped navigate, right? In so many ways. And, and I, I would see or you hear from you just how proud you are because of all the all the members that you were able to bring on, right? The successes they've had, which is which is quite a feat in its own, right? Mm -hmm. But if you if you look at that, what would be an example of an experience? Well, take Jeff Bezos, who was at one stage the richest person in the world, no longer perhaps <laughs> the richest person in the world, but he's not badly off. Yes. So uh, he uh, was a failure also in his early 20s. When he was 26 years old, he had been on Wall Street for, I think, three or four years, and he absolutely hated you know, the people on Wall Street. The, the, it was the age of the, you know, the red braces and, you know, the lords of the universe and people who were very, very arrogant and thought the only important thing in life was making money. And Bezos wasn't like that. He actually uh, was about to give up uh, walking, working on Wall Street. But he went to a headhunter and the headhunter said, look, there's this really weird company that I'm going to send you to. It's not like the other people on Wall Street. It's quite fact, a snail by the headhunter, right? <laughs> yeah, you're a great pitch. He said, you know, it's it's not even in Wall Street or near Wall Street. It, it, it's in Greenwich Village and it's on top of a Marxist bookshop. So it's not exactly the standard issue of uh, investment bank. But he said it's been founded by a very interesting guy called David Shaw, and the company was called D.E. Shaw and Company. And David Shaw was a, a former uh, computer science professor. And what David Shaw did in setting up his company was that he wanted to base uh, alternative investment on highly quantitative algorithms. And, and it's sort of, you know, very, very complicated. I couldn't possibly understand it, but actually the company has been, you know, tremendously successful uh, since then. But the, the thing that for Bezos was that David Shaw had got this view back in 1992 that the internet was going to be a fabulous thing for selling goods and services. So instead of retailing, you know, we now know it as e-tailing, electronic retailing. Um, but David Shaw was absolutely certain that this was going to be a, a huge growth thing. And one of, one of the things that is a standard motif in my experience and in, in what I try and get people to do is go for the areas which are in extremely high growth. But it was better than that for Bezos because he was put on a project by David Shaw and the only two people who worked on it were Shaw and Bezos. And what the project was, was to start something called the Everything Store, which would sell everything on the internet. And guess what, you know, guess what category of goods they would start with? They started with books. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was Amazon. You know, basically it, what Bezos did at Amazon was what David Shaw and he had planned to do together. But one day, Bezos said to David, David, I don't want to run this for you. I want to do it myself. 
And David Shaw sort of took him for a walk around Central Park, so the story goes, and they walked around the park and the ponds and so, so forth for two hours. And Bezos was unmovable. He said, look, you know, I, I really want to run my own show. You, you know, I, I love working with you, David, but I want to do this on my own. And quite astonishingly, David Shaw said, okay. You know, he didn't ask for a share in the company. He didn't say, no, it's mine. <laughs> it's my idea in the first place. Uh, and he agreed that, that uh, Bezos should go off and do that. So that was his transforming experience. You couldn't get more specific than that. Uh, but it's any experience in any sphere which gives you this sort of very rare knowledge. You know, the, the knowledge, the secret knowledge other people didn't have was that the internet was going to be so big for retailing. I mean, I, we now look back and say, well, of course, but nobody else was saying that at the time. So it's trying to find if, you know, try, if, if someone wants to have a transforming experience, maybe some of the people listening or watching to this, watching this, would actually say, well, actually, actually, I do need to acquire some rare knowledge, go to a company that's growing very fast, because if it's growing very fast, and it's different, if it's growing very fast, and it's different, like DE Shaw and company, the chances are that it knows something that nobody else knows. And if you know that, you can then apply that not to do exactly what uh, the, the company itself was doing, you know, Bezos didn't set up something which was a quantitative hedge fund, which was basically what DE Shaw was. But go away and do something, apply that same knowledge in a different sphere. And, you know, that is the secret of success. You know, just take something that works and put it in a different context. It's, it's so eloquently said, right? And but, it, but just be able to channel the energy of where you've seen it work before and then put it into a new space and allow that to expand. You can... There, there's a number of people who've had successful companies, right? Where, mm -hmm. where even they start on one idea and then they channel it, right? And, and then, then the company explodes, right? And so when, when you talk of areas of high growth, which you've mentioned a few times, um, of course, you're, you're, you're in the European market. So, so that, that could be context for, for the discussion. But what are you doing to, to really search for companies that, that not everyone already knows are, are really in a point of accelerated growth? Well, the secret is actually to look at the numbers, but to get to them at the very early stages. And when I invested in Betfair, the company which became the world's largest betting exchange, a very, very big business, uh, it was nine months into the life of the company. So I wasn't there at the beginning, but I was there at the second round. And Betfair was a very odd company because it was not like a traditional gambling company where you have a bookmaker who sets the odds. So uh, in, in England, there are lots of these companies, Nadbrooks, William Hill, and so on and so forth. Um, and what it was, was the idea of taking, and this is another example of applying the same thing in a different context. They took the idea of an electronic market, which by that stage, the stock market itself was, and applied it to gambling. So instead of having someone decide what the odds were and then take a huge profit in what they call the over round, you know, basically if you add up uh, the same bet, bets on, on every horse to win a certain amount of money, uh, they came to 110% or sometimes 120 or 130%. And that 10%, 20% or 30% over round was the profit. Well, there was this guy called uh, Bert Black, Andrew Black, and he came up with the idea of having this betting exchange. But the thing about 
the betting exchange was that it was run by people who didn't know really how to run a company. None of them had ever run a company before. I don't think any of them had actually worked in a normal company before. You know, the, the chief executive was someone who came from a financial background and he worked for, I think it was Morgan Stanley. Uh, and he worked on, on, on the debt side of Morgan Stanley. So nothing really to do with gambling or to do with uh, sport or anything like that. Um, and everyone who, who joined the company was either a sports enthusiast or a gambler or a gambling enthusiast. And so when they went around and tried to raise money from professional venture capitalists, the venture capitalists said, who, who amongst you has actually run a company? <laughs> and that was very unanswerable question. And they said, well, you know, don't you think that you should hire a chief executive who perhaps has worked in gambling before, or who even has, you know, worked in, you know, in, in a, a startup business or, you know, don't you think that you should do And they said, no, no, we, we've got a good idea. <laughs> we're going we're to make a go of it. So they raised money from their friends and family, you know, and so that started the company. Unfortunately, they were growing so fast that their money just went, you know, it, it, it you know, they didn't reach break even. They were growing incredibly fast, but, you know, they ran out of money. And then they went back to the same people and different people who were professional money managers in venture capital, and they had the same conversation. Fortunately, one of the people who'd worked for me in LEK and had subsequently become a partner of mine in an organisation we set up shortly after that called Strategy Ventures, a guy called Anthony Rice, uh, contacted me and said, look, I've made an investment in this company because he was one of the original investors. They run out of money. And um, it, this company is right up your street, Richard, because I actually like gambling. And also, obviously, it was a very high growth company. It was actually growing at something like 30, 40, 50, 60% a month. <laughs> so, that, so, you know, it didn't take a genius to work out that eventually, probably very quickly, it would reach break even. And I went along and talked to the people and, you know, they were very intelligent, but they were totally inexperienced. But I reckoned that we could work around that in one, one way or another. So I made, I don't know, I, from the first tranche of investment that I made in that company, which was one and a half million pounds, I, I made, I think, I've said previously it was 100 million, but I've checked my numbers. And as usual, my numbers were not totally accurate. I think it was 87 million or something like that. Anyway, but a lot of money, a very good return on investment. But is, that also is a good example of a, a company which transformed people because those early people who didn't know what they were doing, most of them went on to be very, very successful. So in a way, it's an, it's an illustration both of the star principle that they were a leader in a very, very tiny, tiny segment which grew to be very big. It's, a, it's an example of a transforming experience for the first 10 or 20 people who were in the company who got that knowledge and then became very, very successful and made money because they also invested or got options in the small company. And it's an example of the power of growth and of taking an idea from one sphere to another sphere. So that's another example. I heard you say that uh, for the first two or three years that you had invested, you had never even tried the product. Is that is that correct? Yeah, or I tried their app. I think it's three or four years. I wasn't and not am not now very tech savvy. And I was a bit intimidated by this. So I asked a friend of mine who who was a professional um, racing tipster or journalist, a guy called Patrick Weaver. I asked him, 
to take a look at it and tell me if, if he thought it worked. And so he took, took a look at it and said, yes, it, it works, Richard, that's, that's fine. Um, and I said, well, you know, do you think I could learn how to use it? And he said, yeah, you could probably learn how to use it because I could actually write a document and, you know, put it in bold or italics or, you know, put the, uh, uh, the dots, you know, for, for, for dot points and so on and so forth. So, you know, I could have done it. But I said to him, no, I'm not going to. It's too, it's too complicated for me. I'll just leave it for the time being. And because I was pretty busy, I never got around to it for another three or four years. And then we went to an away day with uh, the Betfair executives. And I gave them a speech about the star principle and said they're an example of it. And they were very impressed by that. Um, but um, then I said, and do you know, I've just started using this thing. And they looked at me as if I was completely mad. How could you put one and a half million pounds or any money into a company where you didn't know how to work the, the app? You didn't know how to work the website. Uh, and they were just shaking their heads. But for me, it was a star business. And therefore, I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to, to understand it. Just the same as when you go and drive a very powerful sports car. You know, you don't need to understand how the internal combustion engine works or anything like that. You know, you just know that you put your foot on the accelerator, boom, away it goes. Uh, and the same thing for me. If you really believe in a principle, uh, you don't need to actually look at it in all that detail. And during my investing career, Jason, it's very, very strange to say this, but I've never had an organisation. You know, I do have, I do have one or two people who work with me now. But, you know, it's easy if you have a principle. You know, if you have a principle which really works, like the STAR principle, all you need to know about the company is, is it, is it growing very fast? Is the market that's in very, very uh, growing very fast? And is the company the leader in a niche, correctly defined niche? Even if the niche is tiny, 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 it doesn't matter because then the company will be successful. So that's an example of esoteric knowledge which, you know, I mean, nowadays I've written a book called The Star Principle, which you very kindly recommended. Um, you know, anyone can read about this, but it's astonishing that there is no company that I'm aware of in venture capital which just does that. They might do it for an occasional investment. And maybe someone should set up one of those companies. I don't want to do that because I don't want to manage anyone's money except my own. That's a horrible responsibility. But maybe there are other people who would like to do that. So that's another idea for your, your uh, viewers. That's a great idea. And so I, I listened to your success and something that's, that's carried through is that um, you, you may have made that bet uh, without actually, you know, using the product, which, which for most, including myself, you know, is astounding, right? But, but you had already done the verification based on what, you, what you've seen before in prior successes and also the people you surrounded yourself with, right? So one of the earlier investors being someone who worked with you at LEK um, and then your, your uh, friend at the racetrack, just giving you the validity that this, this it was a useful product, right? And that, that yeah. helps at the stage, right? And that could be a stepping stone. And I feel so many times we, we feel that our and I, I've been going through this myself, you know, my opinion is the only one that should really surface to, to help me make the best decision, right? But, but every product's not going to be right for me. And so I can miss a ton of opportunities if I'm not seeing what the, what the masses potentially need. What would you yes. think? Yes, far better to ask someone who is an expert than to try and do it yourself. At least that's what I... But this also ties into, you mentioned my book, The 80-20 Principle, which has sold indeed over a million copies. You know, the whole idea of that is that there are very few things that really matter. 
But if you if you identify the things that really matter, then you can ignore 99% of reality and just focus on those things. And then you can ask other people, uh, you know, who are experts, you know, does this work, doesn't work. You know, very often we just think that we need to know a lot of things. We don't actually, in order to be successful in life, you only need to know one thing. But if it's a really good thing, uh, that's all you need. When you look at today's setting with the, with the last, you know, a little over almost 12 months now of just a change in environment, how are you looking at, at investments going forward? How are you looking at, at companies that potentially um, are going to have accelerated growth, right, due, due to a lot of different reasons, right? So, so um, working from home, um, lack of office space, uh, different industries of need, what, what draws your eye today? Well, I... I think it's true that, that the, the COVID phenomenon has actually really, really uh, helped companies that are based uh, virtually. I mean, it makes, stands to reason, doesn't it, that you can, you can, we're having this conversation, you know, it's a virtual conversation. Um, and a company like Zoom, you know, obviously is going to be very, very successful. But I don't actually need to try and work out what the next wave is because there are a lot of people who are much cleverer than I am sort of thinking about those issues. Whenever people ask me about the virus, I, I refuse to discuss it because, you know, I've no idea whether this is going to be a phenomenon which changes the world or whether it's going to be just a, a temporary blip. I've no idea whether there can be other similar viruses and invasions which are going to turn our whole lives upside down but I don't need to know that all I need to know is if there's a company out there that is growing incredibly fast you know what is it doing and is it the leader and that's all I need to know so I don't really believe in trying to uh, spot trends now of course you could say well Bezos spotted this trend about the internet um, and fair enough he did um, or at least he worked in David Shaw's company, so therefore he couldn't avoid knowing about it. I learned about the star principle because I worked at the Boston Consulting Group at a time that it was very, very small. So, you know, you'd, you stumble across these things, Jason, very often. I don't think that thinking it through from first principles will necessarily lead you to the next greatest investment. I just look at the results. It's very easy. Anything that's growing very fast, particularly if no one else has noticed it, is something that I'm very, very interested in. Mm -hmm. And the more obscure and the stranger and the weirder, the odder that this particular business is, the better, because other people will be, be put off by that. And if the people running it are uh, seem to be very inexperienced uh, or slightly odd, I'm even more interested in it. So I, I can't tell you what the next great trend is going to be. Uh, I really can't, uh, uh, because I don't know and I don't care. You know, it, it's so funny because the, the recipes that that you uh, that you stated here would, would would make most right. Just as you spoke about the VC firm, so um, weird, obscure that no one notices that um, the people running it have no knowledge of what they're doing. Right? That that would scare scare ninety nine point nine percent of the masses. But what you found is you found a reasonable success by understanding that you have to always look at it full circle, right? So where, where's the need for this for this space or this product and, and yeah. this company? What are the resources, right? Because I, I feel one thing that, that might change the narrative is so much has been focused on schooling, right? You have to be in school for this set amount of years and this set amount oh, of yes. years to produce yeah. this no, result. I mean, this is 
this is ridiculous, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is something that Tim Ferriss talks about, which I think is absolutely right. You know, why do we channel everyone who appears to be extremely intelligent into the same educational standards? Why do they all go to Harvard or, or Stanford or Yale or Oxford or Cambridge or Sorbonne or whatever? Uh, even in Asia, they have the same phenomenon. You know, why are, do they all do the same things? And then why do they all get jobs in a particular type of company? And why are they told that they have to have this kind of experience and that kind of experience and the rest of it? It's pure lunacy because ideas that are tremendously successful emerge from all sorts of weird and wonderful, strange places. I mean, Albert Einstein, theory of relativity, he's one of the people who's unreasonably successful in my book, never went to a good university. He went to the second best university in Zurich. And he graduated near the bottom of his class. And like me, he couldn't add up. Although I certainly couldn't come up with a theory of relativity. But, but you know, it was a matter of intuition. It was a matter of, of focusing on some very powerful ideas at the time. Quantum physics was sort of you know, invented at the end of the 19th century. And he read everything about it. And he thought very, very deeply about it. But he was a really strange guy. He was from a family of peddlers you know, uh, basically gypsies used to, you know, go from place to place. And he liked playing the violin. And, you know, the guy who set up uh, or had the idea for Betfair, Bert Black, always turned up at the office in shorts in the middle of winter. <laughs> these people who come up with these ideas are really odd. So I think it's a real shame that everyone's doing the same thing because the way to succeed is not to do the same thing. You might be reasonably successful. You know, you're certainly not going to go hungry with a degree from a good degree from Harvard or Yale or Stanford, but or even from Tennessee, because Bill Bain actually went to university in Tennessee. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, and uh, uh, I can tell you which one if, you, if, you, if you're interested, but I, it's probably the main one. What's the main one in Tennessee? Uh, so there's University of Tennessee, uh, which which usually serves uh, as the big another big one, MTSU. Um, that... oh, I think it is the University of Tennessee. Anyway, he he, he did, I think. And uh, I think uh, the reason he met Bruce Henson from Boston's consulting group was that he'd also been to the same one. So, so you know, uh, it's chance things like that, Jason, which are really important. Not going to the right school not going to, you know, not basically following the track that everyone else is following. You need to find different experiences, which will transform you. You know, you said chance. And, and what I think is, is relative to that word is that there's always a chance for everyone if we have our eyes open, right? And it's, it's for us when we assume that we're stuck in a path and we won't, we won't look around to see what's, what's given to us, even on the smallest level can be that step that you need to take, right? So just the chance meeting that they both happen to be at university in Tennessee, right? And then that that's that's the stepping stone to 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 the next phase of which now creates another relationship, which opens up new doors, which leads to your path, right? So these these happen so much, but so many times we get stuck in a in a in blinders, right? Where where the only path is the path we're on because and we're not paying attention to the road. And usually it leads yeah. us misguides us right so so our yeah. path may be a straight line but because we, we have blinders on we're, we're detouring 40 degrees off to the right or the left and we're missing the point right and that yeah. happens so much what, what do you think will be your let, let me rephrase that when you when you look back with what all you've done now and you look forward 
where do you, where do you vision the next, if you have, you know, three, four years of, of what you will be focusing on? Yes, I'm asking myself the same question. So any, anybody who uh, is listening to this, watching this, uh, has got a bright idea, let me know. Um, I tell you one thing, which is true, absolutely true. The more successful you are, whether you deserve it or not, and one of my points is that many of the people in my book actually really didn't deserve their success by conventional standards. Uh, whether you um, deserve it or not, uh, it gets a lot easier once you've had one success to then leverage that for another success. And in a way, that's terrible because you do get this, this sort of you know hugely steep pyramid uh, where some people, you know, find it terribly easy to go on and do great things. Uh, but I think the key thing is whatever level of success you've reached at so far, realize that that's a springboard for much more greater success and think about something which is completely unreasonably successful. And one of the landmarks in my book is one breakthrough achievement. You actually only need one breakthrough achievement in your life to actually make a huge difference to the world, not just to yourself, but to, to the world. And so, you know, think about what that one thing might be and go and have experiences which are very unusual, which might lead you to have these accidental things. I mean, just one final, I know that we've probably overrun our time, but one final illustration, which I love, is that of Helena Rubinstein. Helena Rubinstein was a poor little girl in the slums uh, of, um, Eastern Europe in Poland. And she decided to leave home and after a long story, she eventually ended up in Australia. So she got a boat to Australia, which took forever to get there. And then she went and worked as a domestic servant in the outback where there was nobody really interesting to talk to. And there were lots and lots and lots and lots of sheep. And then she decided to go back to Melbourne, which is where she had started. And she had no money and she had no qualifications. Uh, and she then got a job as a waitress at two different, she was so poor, she had to work at two different uh, cafes. And one was a cafe near the Winter Garden. And there she happened to meet four friends. Uh, one of them was an artist, another one was a printer, another one was a tea importer. And the fourth one uh, was a, 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 another kind of artist. Anyway, she met these four guys. And she got into conversation with them and they said to her, you know, you had very interesting background. What do you want to do? And she said, well, when I was in Poland, my mother made this skin cream, which actually really works. And, you know, when I came on the boat, I brought some pots of this skin cream. So they said, well, this is very interesting. Bring us a pot and we'll see about it. So she brought them a pot of, of this thing that the next day when they were having their breakfast, I think. And, uh, you know, they sort of looked at it and, you know, put some on their face and the rest of it. And she said, the point about this is that it will actually save Australian women from the ravages of sun and age. And at that time, cosmetics had not been invented. And so one of these guys actually said, well, yeah, I think this might work. Why don't you set up... Um, uh, a studio, why don't you set up somewhere where you can sell this stuff and perhaps give treatments to people uh, for their skin and so on and so forth. And she said, yeah, but I haven't got any money. And then one of them said, yes, but I have, you know, and I'll, I'll bankroll you. And 
set her up in business. Actually, she became his mistress, which is probably not something you should mention. But at first time, anyway, they, she set up this thing. And that was her transforming experience, setting up this cosmetics house in very close to the Winter Garden in Melbourne. Fantastic success right from the start. She was a very smart lady, completely uneducated. But one of the things she realized was that, that in order to make a success out of this, this cosmetic product, she needed to price it very expensively. And she said, no one will believe it's any good unless it's really expensive. And, and one of the guys said, well, I, I got my accountant to look at this and he reckons that you could sell this for, I mean, I think they're still using English money at the time, for two and sixpence. And she said, I don't want to sell it for two and sixpence. I want to sell it for eight shillings and 10 pence, you know, and sort of huge amount of money. And they said, it's ridiculous. You'll make a huge amount of money from it and no one will buy it. She said, you're half right. And then she had this great line, which was, uh, there are no ugly women, there are only lazy women. And of course, the lazy woman was someone who didn't buy her cosmetics. And she <laughs> founded this Helena Rubenstein business, which for 100 years had been hugely successful and, and been a star business itself. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. It's, to, it's, it's having the balls to actually, whether you're a man or a woman, and she was obviously a woman, you know, it's having the, 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 the gumption and, and the ability to say, well, actually, I want to do something com completely unreasonable. I'm not qualified for, and it'll, ma it'll make a huge amount of money or it will do a huge amount of good or whatever. And I want to do that. And how am I going to do it? So, and then taking an opportunity that you just stumble across. She didn't know that she was going to meet these people, but she'd always had this ambition. And at the right time, she produced these little pots of skin cream. Um, so there may be a lesson there for some people. It's an incredible story. And, and, and the, the three words that would stand out to me uh, is choose to do, right? Then, then do, right? And that's usually, usually the, the part that, that most miss, right? We, we all have great ideas, but the idea is most for most of us at 99, 95% of the time is not acted upon, right? So do, and then lastly persist. Right, and when you when you set the narrative with those, it's a winning winning strategy across all boards, right? Because because ultimately, if you if you don't stop and and you, you choose, and this is what you feel you you can and, and should do, what else could there be? So, but but you wait. I mean, again, one of the other people in the book is is um, uh, the greatest statesman in the nineteenth century, also from Bismarck, and he had various statements, but one of them was that. But you know you can't actually uh, steer events. You just have to go with the current. And another thing he said, you need to hear the footsteps of providence and then take action. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the thing was that when she arrived in Australia, Helena Rubenstein didn't set about setting up a cosmetics company. She just waited for the right moment. She had no doubt it would come at some stage and she was ready. Yeah, which is great. She, she was unreasonable, you know, unreasonably successful because she had unreasonable ambition. I think that's a great way to, to wrap up here. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me today. I, I learned so much from the first time I heard you on, on Tim Ferriss's show to, to you know, what I've read. And so this, this further guided, I'm sure, not only myself, but a lot of here listening and just on so many points that, that you can take and just act upon, right? To, to just yeah. get your narrative 
to where you want to be in life. So yeah. I, I applaud you and all you've done. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For everyone uh, that would love to find out more about you, where should we point them? Oh, yes. Well, my website, I can't afford a .com, but my website is called www.richardkosh, all one word, .net, or people can reach me on Twitter at richardkosh8020, there's 8020, um, that's my handle on Twitter. And um, yeah, and you'll find on the website my email address and stuff like that. So www.richardkosh.net, you'll find it. And thank you very much indeed, Jason, for inviting thank me on. It's been a great pleasure. Thank great you. Great so questions. Thank pleasure. you. I appreciate bye your bye time. Now. Bye now. Want to learn exactly how we're finding high profit, cash flow ready multifamily properties off market? Want to find out how to run lightning fast syndications to raise all the capital you need for your next multi-million dollar deal in just a few days? We are breaking down our entire process step by step at a three-day event happening June 10th through the 12th called you guessed it, Multifamily Live. We've done events before, but nothing this massive or this valuable. And for the first time ever, we're going to open the doors and walk you guys through literally every step of what we're doing on our multifamily deals. This is a virtual event, so you don't have to travel or even leave your couch, but spots are limited. Sign up at multifamilyliveevent.com and we'll see you there.